Remember, we honor God by standing when we read the inerrant word of God. That's what they did in Ezra. So they didn't need Nehemiah. They stood when they read the word of God. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. This is the word of God. Oh, you guys are so good. Thank you. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this time to spend in the inerrant, infallible word of the living God. Please, Lord, teach us things today that we need to learn from this word. Holy Spirit, open our eyes and ears to the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Now, the theme of Revelation is... <laughs> how many times have I said that? Well, this is similar. The theme of Matthew is Jesus is the promised king. Jesus is the promised king. In Revelation, is Jesus is the king. He's coming. He's judging and that sort of thing. Now, we've completed our study in Revelation and just finished Philemon. And I was wondering which gospel we would do. Well, it came down to Matthew. And I think I did Matthew because, well, I felt the Lord directing me. But there's a connection between the Old and the New Testament. And we'll get into that more in just a second. There are four gospels that you need to be aware of that the church has accepted as written as inspired by the Holy Spirit. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Very easy to memorize, very easy to remember. The thing that you want to remember is that these are not just written by men, but these are inspired by the Spirit of the living God. This is, oftentimes people say, how can we trust this Bible? It was just written by men. Oh no, this is supernatural. We have God-inspired men penning what God wanted them to pen. The inspiration of Scripture is foundational to our faith. 2 Timothy 3.16, this is a memory verse for everybody, everyone. All Scripture... How much scripture? All scripture is God-breathed. Theonuptos. Theo God nuptos. <sighs> the breath of God. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is God-breathed. And Peter jumps on this also in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of men. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Folks, this is God-breathed. This is God's word to us, the infallible, inerrant word of the living God that is impugned today, but we base our lives on this word, and we worship the one that this word talks about, the Lord Jesus Christ. From beginning to end, Jesus is coming. A Savior is coming. A Savior is coming. Now, how do we know that the Bible is inspired by God? Well, you've been here long enough. You know that the FACES acronym is that we usually, that I usually use. Fulfilled prophecy, archaeological discovery, internal consistency, external evidence, scientifically reliable. Then we have the resurrection. We have the, we have the, the Jewish nation as validity. But I'm just going to give you two today. One is the, is the internal consistency. 66 books. Now, no other holy book is written like this. 66 books, 66 books, 40 authors written at over 1,500 years in three languages on three continents with an integrated message from the beginning to the end that someone wonderful is coming, a Savior's coming. 
The Savior's coming. The Savior's coming from beginning to end. And then fulfilled prophecy. And we've been through this so many times. I'm just going to give you a couple of examples. At Jesus' crucifixion, you remember that there are at least 30 prophecies that were fulfilled. Something that was predicted in the Old Testament hundreds of years ago and came to fruition in the New Testament. Fulfilled prophecy. Jesus was crucified with thieves. If he hung nearby himself, he would not have been the Messiah. When they came to break the legs, then the right guy and the left guy, the left thief and the right thief, legs are broken, accelerated death, but oh no, not with Jesus, because no bone could be broken. They got ready to hit his tibias, and he was dead. They didn't break his bone. They gambled for his clothes. He had to be pierced. Remember, he had to be, and he was pierced. And he was buried in a rich man's tomb. He wasn't just thrown in a common grave. He was buried in a rich man's tomb. You cannot make this up, folks. Fulfilled prophecy tells us that we really have the Word of God in our hands. Now, Matthew, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. What does that mean, synoptic? It means seeing together, seeing with the same eye. The synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, look at the life of Jesus. His humanity is living on the earth. But, oh, John looks at his deity. He is, remember, there are seven I am's in John. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection of life. And he goes on. The I am of Exodus chapter 3. I am the ego am I. I am God. That is what Jesus is saying in the book of John. Well, in the book of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we look at his humanity, his life, and how it affects the world. Now, this may surprise you. The writers to the epistles, their names are mentioned at the beginning of each epistle. But not for the Gospels. It is by church tradition that we believe that it was Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Also, there were many other Gospels that tried to make it into the canon of Scripture. The, the, book of, the Gospel of Thomas, and there was a Gospel of Mary and, and Philip and that sort of thing. They never, made, they never made the cut. They were written hundreds of years later, not, of course not by the person that was purported to have written it. So they were not genuine. Each of the four Gospels has a different audience. And if you would, put up the slide. Reagan, thank you. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The reader, Matthew, is written to the Jew. And it's the connection piece between the Old and New Testament. I'll have a slide here in a few minutes to show you that. Mark is written to the Romans. Luke is written to the Greeks. And John is written to the world. And really the church and the encouragement of John is come into the church. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is that focus. Now the next one is there's, is there's four sections of Matthew that you need to be aware of. Now this is taken from Chuck Swindoll's work. He gets the credit. The, the, again, it's the king, the king, the king, the king. The first four chapters are the announcement of the king. Five through fifteen is the proclamation of the king. Then there's opposition to the king. Now, Jesus was very popular at the beginning of his ministry. Most of it took place in Galilee. As he got closer to the cross, he had more and more rejection and more and more trials and tribulations, particularly with the Jewish leadership. And then finally, in chapter 28, there's the resurrection and triumph of the king. And then finally, Matthew is broken down into sections where there's five sermons or five discourses that we'll be studying in the book of Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount, of course, most people are very familiar with. When he sent out his 12 disciples, there was a sermon. Parables in chapter 13 were as a sermon. The greatest in the kingdom 
uh, and talking about the church in 18, of course, the Olivet Discourse is something we went through thoroughly and completely in our book of Revelation. But each section ends with, when Jesus finished these words. And then you know that it's the end of that section going into another section. Now it seems reasonable to me that Matthew would be the first one written. Now there's an argument with scholars, is it Mark or is it Matthew? Is it Mark or is it Matthew? But it seems to me, like I said, that there's a connection. If it's written to the Jews and it's connecting the Jewish Old Testament with the New Testament, that Matthew would be the first one. Remember, Paul said in Romans 1.6.16, it was to the Jew first and then to the Greeks. To the Jew first and then to the Greeks. Now, all of that is a lot of minutia that most of you will not remember, okay? But I want you to really zero in on this next statement because I think this is exceedingly important. Matthew was written to the Jews with an offer of the kingdom to Israel. They could have accepted Jesus as the Messiah, and the millennial kingdom would have started right after the crucifixion because Jesus had to die for the sins of the world. That didn't happen. They, were, they rejected that. The offer had its final rejection in Matthew chapter 12, 20, and what they did in the next statement is they blasphemed the Holy Spirit. It was rescinded when the Jewish leadership blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And if you remember what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, it's simply ascribing to Jesus the things of Satan. And that was in Matthew chapter 12, verse 31. What happened then is that the Jewish nation was set aside for a time, and we went through this over and over and over through our study in Daniel and the 70 weeks prophecy and how time stopped. At the, there was 490 years that were given for Jerusalem, for the, for the nation, and it stopped at the 483-year point when there was time was cut off for the Jews, and you had this gap of time called the church age. So the church age followed and will continue until something spectacular happens. And that is the fullness of the Gentiles. When the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then all Israel will be saved. Okay? After the fullness of the Gentiles. So what is the fullness of the Gentiles? It's a set number saved during the church age. During the church age. Acts chapter 15 verse 14 says this. Simon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his own name. I skipped Romans 11:25 and 26, but I think I should digress and just explain that to you. Paul is writing, and he says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brethren, lest you be wise in your own opinion. For blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved. There will be a time when the last Gentile says, yes, Jesus, I believe you as my Savior, and that will be the end of the time of the Gentiles. And I think that's when we exit stage left, okay? I believe in the rapture of the church, the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. So that there, was a, there will be a reoffer of the kingdom to the Jewish people in the tribulation period. The seven-year tribulation is directed at the Jewish people to do two things. And if we were in a Sunday school class, I would ask you the question, and you would say this answer. They have to admit their national sin of rejecting Messiah. And what else? They have to plead for Messiah to return. 
And they do that at the very end of the tribulation, just a few days before the end, according to Hosea 5.15. And then Jesus comes back and he saves them from the Antichrist. Now we do have the intertestinal period. It's the 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew. And during that time period, from Malachi to Matthew, there was no prophet in Israel. No word from God. And the question that had to resonate with the Jewish people was this. Had God forgotten his people? And I can say a resounding no way. No way. God never forgets his people. God is always at work. When, even when we don't understand what in the world is going on in our lives, when we have the, uh, why is this happening to me now? God is always at work in nations and in individuals, always. God was working through the nations to prepare for Messiah to come. He had to have everything in place, everything set up. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Remember the nations in that statue. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. Then we had the Ten Nation Confederation that were the toes. We went through this over and over and over and what that represented. Babylon came on the scene and Babylon was used for his purpose to display his wrath for idol against idolatrous Israel. Israel had prophet after prophet after prophet went to them and said, turn, don't follow the gods of the culture. Don't go by the way of the culture. Stay with the true God. And Judah said, no. Judah said, no, we will have you, God, but we're also going to have the gods of the culture. They tried to blend it. No, God will cause you to choose, people. God will cause you to choose. You cannot have a divided heart. You cannot say, I'll have you, God, and I'll have you other gods. No, no. He is a jealous God. You shall have no other gods before me. Then God raised up Persia. Persia for his purpose. And it was to restore his people to the land and to Jerusalem. And there was an amazing prophecy given in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. Watch what God says 150 years before Cyrus, King Cyrus, the Persian king, that would release the people of Israel to go back and rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. 150 years before this guy came to life, Isaiah prophesied this, and God says, Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd? And he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, You shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Oh yes, King Cyrus, I will direct you on what you will do. He's using this heathen king for his purpose. In 45.13 it says this, I have raised him up in righteousness, that's Cyrus, and I will direct all of his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free, not for price or reward, he will do it, says the Lord of hosts, implying he's doing it because I'm telling him to. Who's sovereign? God is sovereign. Let me try that again. Who is sovereign? God is sovereign. Thank you. That's right. God is sovereign. So after Persia, God raised up the nation of Greece for his purpose to establish a universal language, a universal language, a common language. Remember, Alexander the Great conquered the known world in, in blinding speed. He conquered Persia, who was impossible to conquer. But with his violence and his ferociousness and his speed, he conquered the Persian Empire, extended his empire all the way to India. And with that, the Greek language was spread all over the known world. A common language, 
a common language. It was at that time, during the time when the Septuagint was written. Remember, Septuagint, septo means 70. So seven, 70 authors, or 72 or so, came together and wrote the Greek Old Testament. That is what Jesus quoted from. That is what Paul referred to, was the Greek Septuagint, the Old Testament scriptures translated into Greek. Now there was a common language. And then Rome came into power. And with Rome, it came to establish a road system to spread the gospel. The Magi get to Bethlehem to see the, get to Bethlehem to see the baby because of the roads. The gospel is spread because of the road system. Hear this. God uses world leaders. They're not there by accident. He uses world leaders and events for his purpose. Paul tells us exactly what is going on with the Jewish nation when they wondered, where is Messiah? Where is Messiah? What are we asking? Where is Messiah? Jesus, when are you coming back? I mean, I can't believe it. I mean, all these things are in order. The Jews are in the land and everything's in chaos. When are you coming, Jesus? I mean, it's a common question for his people. Paul says this in Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time has come, God sent his son, born of a woman, implying the virgin birth. God sent his son at the fullness of time, at the proper time. I love Chuck Swindoll's paraphrase on this. Listen to what he says. When days and events had run their course and the precise moment was reached according to God's plan, a Savior emerged on the human scene. Jesus arrived in Mary's womb. I'll tell you, just on time, at the perfect time, at God's time, Jesus came the first time, and he will come at the exact, perfect, right time at the second coming. Now, I'm just hoping that's right, right now. Just, not right now. Right now, right. It can happen any second. Look, at, God is acting today in our world. I want you to hear this, please. God is acting in our world today for his purposes. God is not silent. God is not blind to what is happening. God is not blind to the Marxist changes that are being foisted upon our country. He sees what is happening. We know what's going to happen. We know that we're going towards globalism. We know that we're going towards a one-world government. We've been through this over and over and over, how our world is changing in preparation for the Antichrist. Rapid world changes are screaming that God is at work. You know it because you study prophecy. But the rest of the world doesn't know. They could care less. They have a disdain for God. They don't really want the true God. Skeptics scoff. The world sneers. And you know what Revelation chapter 22 verse 11 says? Let them. Watch what it says. He who is unjust, if after all of the evidence that you have seen in the book of Revelation, the 144,000 witnesses, the witnesses for Jesus, the two witnesses in Jerusalem, the, the three angels that go about flying through the atmosphere, telling everybody the gospel, don't take the mark, and Babylon has fallen. And if the world's going to reject that, he says, he who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he who is holy, let him be holy still. Remember this, what we must remember, there will be a perfect time in the future, a perfect time in the future, and God will again take action, and his son will return the second time. Look, at he came in an inauspicious way the first time, didn't he? 
Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem, 70 miles. He was, he was unwelcomed. The world could have cared less about Jesus coming into the world, but it won't be that way with the second coming. When the king comes back, every eye will see him. There will be fear and awe and absolute respect for this king who will come and reign on the earth. Shocking it will be. Now, who is Matthew? Not much is known about Matthew except he wrote this gospel. His name means gift of Yahweh. His father's name is Alphaeus. We see that in Mark 2.14. And he had a wonderful profession. He was a tax collector, just loved by everybody. Oh, everybody hated Matthew. He was a skimmer of money. He was a manipulator. He was, he was wealthy because he, there was a banquet held in his house in Luke 5.29. But he was called to be a disciple of Jesus Christ in Mark 3.18. You know what that tells me? God takes people from all walks of life. There's nobody too far from God that he doesn't take. Oh, if you'll just turn to him. His death is controversial. Some people believe he died by natural causes. Most people believe he died in Ethiopia, pinned to the ground with spears, and it was beheaded. Now, his influence again was on the, is with the Jewish people, and the kingship of Messiah is his focus. Now we're going to go into what's called the genealogy. Now look at whenever you get into a class and you're going, oh no. The genealogy. Oh, this is going to be terrible. Well, hold on. It won't be as bad as you think. Okay? So verse 1 and 2, he's going to connect the Old Testament with the New Testament genealogy. So the book of the genealogy of the most important person that's ever lived in the history of the world, Jesus Christ. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah, the fourth son, and his brothers. And Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. This is the start of the genealogy. Now, there's a bridge between the Old and the New Testament. So I was just looking for some word picture. Now, these are actually all of the scripture that are the scriptures, Christian scriptures. But I like this concept of the bridge connecting the Old with the two. We have these 400 years of silence, but now... It's Jewish scriptures. A Jewish man, Matthew, is, is writing to a Jewish audience connecting the Old and the New Testament. So I just wanted to have that word picture in your, in your mind. And again, there's 400 years since Malachi to, to, to Matthew. The genealogy of Jesus Christ. Let that, let that resonate within you. The most important person to ever lived. Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus is the Greek. Yeshua is the Hebrew. It means the Lord is salvation. Christ, Mashiach. I like, I like, I like to kind of slur that up. Mashiach. <laughs> Almost sounds Jewish. Or Messiah, as we would say it. Yeah, it, it, it means he is the anointed one. The one the world has been looking for. Since Genesis 3.15, the crushing of the serpent's head, we've been waiting for Messiah. Waiting for Messiah to come back. And now we're waiting for him to come back the second time to save, the, save us from this mess that we're living in. Jesus is the deliverer of Israel, but not only the nation of Israel. He's your deliverer. He's your rescuer. Jesus is the Savior of all mankind. He is the hope of all mankind. Let me say this loud and clear. Mankind is not the hope of mankind. 
the World Economic Forum, head by, headed by Klaus Schwab, who wants to do the Great Global Reset, he's not, they're not saving the world, okay? All of these rich movers and shakers, now they might have an altruistic view or think they do, but they are devoid of knowing what God is doing. They are devoid of a God sense. They think they're saving the world. No way. No way. Only Jesus can save mankind. Joseph had it perfect when the angel spoke to Joseph about his mission in Matthew 1.21. For he will save his people from their sins. Now that's speaking of the nation of Israel, but who else are his people? Everyone that believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Everyone that believes that Jesus died in their place, put their trust in him, relied on him, committed themselves to him. You are his people. He has the titles, the Son of David, which is a messianic title for king. The Son of Abraham, his roots go all the way back to the, to the patriarchs. He's, he's speaking to a Jewish audience, a Jewish people about a Jewish Messiah that would set the captives free. Remember, he whom the Son has set free is what? Free indeed. That's right. We are freed by our Lord. Christianity frees us. The world captures us, imprisons us. He sets the captives free. What did the Jewish people miss when, when Jesus came the first time? They wanted a king right out of the chute. But they needed a savior before they could have their king. That's what they missed. Verses 3 through 6, there's a great surprise here. There are women in the genealogy. And that would be like, oh, for the Jewish manhood, that would be like, ah, how can you, how can you have this? Well, verse 3 through 6, I will read this. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, Tamar is a Gentile woman. Okay? There's, there's my, some quibble with that, but I believe she is. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Abimadad. Abimadad begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab the, what do we know her as? The harlot. Yes, the harlot. Gentile. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, the Moabite. Gentile. And Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. And David the king begot Solomon by her was the wife of Uriah. Notice the careful word usage, not the wife of David, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Bathsheba was probably a Hittite, a Gentile. Just an interesting side note. So it's, uh, it, the Bible is so true. It exposes the good, the bad, and the ugly of its characters. That's why you know it's true. It's unusual for women to be included in a Jewish genealogy, and this section has four, four Gentile women. Women are very much inferior to men in the East. And folks, this continues to today. There's nothing changed. You look at when Islam takes over, when it took over in Iran, and you go from a regular, you know, where women had freedom, to now they're fully covered, they're in burkas, they're walking behind the men, they have no privileges, no, no place, nothing. They have nothing. Christianity has set women free and has improved their status in life wherever it has been, been put into place. That's the truth. 
You wouldn't hear that today. People today think Christianity is repressive. Why? Because God has an order. Husband, wife, you know, God, husband. There's an order. doesn't mean the husband's better than the wife. There's just a structure with God. Islam, Hinduism, and communism have something in common. They all treat women as property with little rights and value. Even today in India, and even today in China, there is female infanticide, where they are killing female babies just because of their gender. Just because of their gender. We had four women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. In verse 7 through 10, we're going to see good and bad kings in the genealogy. And I'm not going to go through each one of these. I won't read this section because I don't think you remember a lot of the names. But you must remember the concepts of this 14 generations that were in this section. Okay? 7 through 10. Now this demonstrates something very important and significant. This demonstrates that godliness and righteousness are not inherited. You're not a Christian because your mommy was a Christian, or your daddy was a Christian, or grandma and grandpa were Christians, or you're born in America. That does not mean you were a Christian. There are good kings with bad sons and bad kings with good sons. No one is grandfathered into God's kingdom. All must stand on their own and make a determination. Will I serve the true God? Will I be loyal to Him? Or will I be disloyal to Him, not believe in His Son, and go my own way? Now you'll be surprised at evangelical Christianity at this point in our world today 50% of the evangelicals, what, I don't even use the word evangelical anymore. Just go right to, I'm just a Bible believer. That'll separate you from everybody else. 50% of the evangelicals today believe that you get to heaven by your works. By doing good stuff and being a good person. What's missing in the church is teaching about the Word of God. And people have been just taken down the primrose path of believing whatever they want. Not a single king was able to pass his nature on to the next king. Every person is responsible before God for their life and their behavior. Every person. Now there's an application here for parents that I think is important. Please hear this. Parents who are followers of Messiah have a mission with their children. You know what it is, Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he was old, when he's old, he will not depart from it. Now let me tell you something. This could be heavy guilt on you if you don't have your kids all perfect and in line. Remember, this is a principle, not a promise. A principle, not a promise. Godly parents cannot pass on the godly gene to their kids. There's no such thing as that. You have to accept Christ on your own. There's, you can influence your children, you can pray for your children, you can teach your children, you can direct your children, you can encourage your children, but ultimately it's between them and God. It gets down to that. John 1, 12 and 13 says it perfectly. Yet all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, remember that word believe? is is, is, is pastille, put your trust in, commit yourself to. Follow Jesus Christ. Rely on Jesus Christ as your Savior. That is written as a present participle. That's a continuous action of believing. 
Continuous action of believing. Yet all who receive him, to those whom he believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent. You're just not born into this thing. Or human decision. There's not one of us that came up one day and says, okay, I'm going to be a Christian today. Oh no, the Spirit of God was at work in you. The Spirit of God, the Father was drawing, the, the Son was drawing, the, the Holy Spirit was convicting of sin, righteousness, and judgment. God was opening blind eyes. God was, God was drawing you into Him. He is always the initiator. You don't start raise your hand and just decide one day it's me. No, God has done all the work before that. All the work. It's not by human decision or a husband's will or because the husband or the parent, the mom and the dad want it really bad. We all want it really bad. But it's between that child and that and that and, and God. Salvation is individual. And following the master is what we are called to do. You know, you can tell who's really in this. Now we can't judge somebody's salvation. I think I'd be really careful of this, okay? Really careful. But if you're examining your own life, in which we are told to do in 2 Corinthians. Uh, chapter 13, 5. It's, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. You can do this test. Am I following the Master or am I not? Am I following Jesus or am I not? Remember, Jesus said, real sheep, real sheep follow the good shepherd. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. That's big. That's huge. That's huge. Jesus said that. False sheep follow whomever. I'll follow a little bit of Jesus, and I'll follow a little bit of this, and I'll follow a little bit... Oh no! You must be loyal to Jesus and Him alone. False sheep follow whomever. There's a big difference, and it's, a, it's an eternal difference on who you're following. In verse 11 through 17, we're going to see that God is going to preserve His people. And this is really talking about Babylonian captivity. Judah went into captivity. They saw the ten northern tribes go into ca captivity for idolatry. And sinful Judah followed right in Israel's steps. And they went right into idolatry too. And they ended up in Babylonian captivity. And I won't read these verses either for time. But hear this. Never forget, God is with his people. Those people that went into Babylonian captivity... The vast majority had been given over to idolatry. But do you remember in our study of Daniel? There were righteous ones. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. There were probably more than them. But the vast majority had given themselves over. They, there was a lot of suffering that went on in Babylonian captivity. A lot of misery that went on. But remember, God is with his people he is with you through terrible times, through awful times, and especially during the why times. Why times? Why in the world is this happening now? Don't forget this. He's always with you. When I don't understand, we get plenty of these things in our lives. And if you are past the age of two, you realize there's plenty of these times in your life. And they do not stop. Right until you take your last <sighs> you will be going, what in the world is this all about? That's just the way it is here living in a sinful world. The Babylonians conquered nations. And you know what they did? They assimilated them into the Babylonian Empire. Vast empire, 
took nations and he assimilated them into the empire. They conquered the Jewish people and tried to assimilate them. Most of them did. But there was a remnant that stayed faithful to God. Those are the ones that went back in Ezra and Nehemiah and rebuilt Jerusalem, rebuilt the wall and started the temple and that sort of thing. The Jewish people stayed faithful. They resisted indoctrination. They remained loyal to the true God. Any attempt to eliminate the Jewish people throughout history has failed. And believe me, Satan has tried multiple, multiple, multiple times to exterminate the Jewish people. Why? So they cannot admit their national sin of rejecting Messiah, and they cannot plead for him to return. Satan's smart. And he knows if we eliminate them, they can't do that. God preserved his people. He preserved the line of Messiah. Now hear this. God is orchestrating all of history. He raises up kings and he brings down kings. There's no accidents here. No accidents. And don't panic. He does that with presidents also. There's no mistakes with God. And hear this, God gives the people the king they desire. We're living in a republic, folks. We have the king that this nation has wanted. America has gotten what American desires, and might I say deserves, a post-Christian leadership. And might I add, with not a figment, not a wit, a wit of true, true Christianity associated with it. In the midst of this change in chaos that we're living in today, and it's uncomfortable. You, you admit it. Let's, let's, let's be honest. The things we are seeing are uncomfortable, but God is with you. He is with you all the way through this. God will never forsake you. You know the verse, Hebrews 13, 13 5. I've repeated this many times. He will never, and it's, actually when you read it in the Greek, it's five times emphasized. I'll never, 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 never leave you nor forsake you. Our God will stick with you. Isaiah puts it this way, he'll go through the fire with you. When you walk through the fires, I will be with you. The flames will not touch you. When you pass through the, through the waters, through the floods, they will not overtake you because God is with you. It's not saying you're going to miss those things, but he's going to be with you through that. God is in the furnace with you like the three Hebrew slaves, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they would not bow. I don't care what you say, Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to be loyal to the true God. And they did, right, to the, right into the fiery furnace. God has sustained his people through atrocities of Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. Remember Antiochus Epiphany in our Daniel study, a picture of Antichrist who wanted to kill Jewish people. He sustains his people. The question you have to ask yourself is this. As the fire is heating up in our world, as it is becoming more uncomfortable for Christians, and you ask the Christians in Afghanistan today if it isn't heating up on them like you can't believe. The persecution there is off the rails. Please pray for the church in Afghanistan, which was the second fastest growing church in the world per capita until Taliban has taken over. How are you going to live through these changes, folks? The peace of God is available. It is available to us. Do the changes of your life. I don't like the changes. Do you, are you enjoying your changes? Can't see as well, can't hear as well, can't move as well. I mean, I, I do all this exercise to just try to move a little bit. I don't like all these changes, but hey, it's the way life is on earth. It's the way life is here. 
Will you live in the chaos of the hour, watching the news 24-7, the Marxist news media that we have, feeding you indoctrination over and over? Will you live in turmoil? Will you be distracted by what's going on? Will you be, I got this from Roy, deceptive? Will you, will you be deceived, which will ultimately lead to destruction? I would ask each person in here, each family in here, each, uh, each dad in here who is a head of families, yes, there is a structure in families, God has made it, there is a structure, to take a hard stop and determine, like Joshua did, and declare to your world, declare to your world, who you are in contact with in your world, your workplace, your extended family who thinks you're crazier than a loon because you're a Christian and you actually believe this stuff. You take a hard stop and you say, as for me and my house, what are you going to do? We will serve the Lord. No equivocating. No equivocating. No wimping out. God has always preserved a people for himself. Our job is to walk in the truth of what he's told us. Don't rely on your feelings, folks. Walk in the truth of what he's told us. God will make a way. God will make a way when there seems to be no way. Don Moen, didn't he? He works in ways we cannot see. He will make a way for me. He will be my guide. Lead me, keep me closely to his side with love and strength for each new day. He will make a way. Yes, my God will make a way. He didn't say it would be easy, but he will make a way. Trust this truth. Closing thoughts. Oh, my goodness. Closing thoughts. Okay. Ready? Get set. Go. Yes, I'm going to be past time. Uh, we talked about the genealogy. We talked about how shocking this must have been to the Jewish people to see women in the genealogy. But I want to suggest to you that it, it means something to us, that all people are savable. I can't emphasize that enough. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female, but we all one in Christ. All one. All are savable. All one in Christ Jesus. The Jewish people have been maligned and persecuted and dispersed throughout the world since Babylonian captivity. They have suffered unbearably. And by the way, persecution of the Jewish people is increasing today, and Christians, as you know, crescendoing again today. Now, how would you feel if you're in that group that's in Iran or, or Afghanistan or China or wherever it is? Persecuted, the persecuted, the disappointed have many reasons to live with anger and unforgiveness. And I want you to think about an event in history. Adolf Hitler created death camps. Death camps. And you recognize these where one-third of the Jewish people were killed. And you got a slide coming up. Reagan, thank you. You'll recognize these names. Buchenwald. Bergen-Belsen. Ravensbrück, Auschwitz, and on it went all through Europe, killing every Jew they possibly could get hold of. Not only Jews, gypsies died, homosexuals were killed, anything that did not meet the Third Reich's view of what humans should be, killed. Keep that in mind. 
Now thinking about atrocities that the nation of Israel has borne in captivity, thinking about the atrocities that we have seen on our screen here in our world even recently, thinking about this, the pain and the suffering, the anger and unforgiveness of people that have lived through this, how can a human move on and recover from this type of atrocity? There are lessons from Auschwitz. And this is, a, this is from John Corson. And he says 40% recovered and 60% did not. And what made the difference was this. Those who did not recover continued to relive the experience, thus perpetuating the despondency. Never letting it go. Always going back to it. Being stuck in it. It's, it would be, it takes a miracle of God. But watch those who have recovered. Those who did recover to live a somewhat normal life. I don't know if you can ever be normal again after some of these experiences. Had to, I didn't write this down, in part of a, but I think this to be true. They had to deal with what happened to them. They had to acknowledge the awfulness of the situation. And then they determined to move on from the pain of the past and chose to not live the situation over and over and over and over and you have to do this with the atrocities that happen to humanity here the murders the rapes the injustices the things that are just beyond our ability to comprehend in order for us to move ahead and to and to have life here after one of those experiences we have to look forward in the genealogy of Christ folks there are many who were abused and persecuted and Jesus Messiah Hear these words loud and clear. The abused, persecuted, disappointed, he is their healer. Jesus Messiah is the healer of every abused, persecuted, and disappointed person. Jesus is the only one who can restore normalcy in an abnormal world. We have an advantage. Paul sees the moment. Paul had a lot of abuse. Remember, shipwrecked, beaten, had all kinds of things, snake bit, floating in the water three times. He had a lot of stuff. The Apostle Paul said this. He lived through many atrocities, many disappointments. His advice was this about not living in the past. Philippians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. We press on towards the goal to win the prize which God has, Christ has, God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. Did you catch it? Please don't miss this. Forgetting what is behind. That's a volitional choice. And I, I believe it's a miracle choice that God has to do within you. And then he says, straining towards what is ahead. You know what that straining is? That word means stretching forward. If I am stretching forward in my life, where am I not looking? I'm not looking back. I'm not, not focused on this. I'm looking at the future. I'm looking at something new, stretching towards what is ahead. Sounds like it takes effort to stretch and to change, doesn't it? To change our thinking, to change our future. And let's be honest about life here. Hurt happens. Hurt happens. There are times that you just have to allow Jesus to pick you up in his arms and hold you and comfort you. 
and get a great big Jesus hug. And I'm telling you, I have felt this in my life when my life was crushing and falling and I had no place to go and I just cried out to God and I sensed his presence like, like you can't believe. I want to give you a picture of a burdened person. Thank you, Reagan. God did not promise days without pain, laughter without sorrow, nor sun without rain, but he did promise us strength for the day, comfort for the tears, and light for the way. And then he has this wonderful verse, Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to me, I will give you rest. Crawl up into the lap of your Jesus and allow him to give you a hug. Our study in Matthew will give us ample opportunity to show us how much Jesus really cares for each one of us. He cares. He cares so much he came here. And I think that Jesus is saddened by the consequences of sin and death. Remember when he wept over, over Lazarus and the consequences of death and he, he saw that? He wept over the sin of Jerusalem on his triumphal entry? How much Jesus loves us. How much Jesus experienced all the crud of life just like us. Our Jesus knows. Our Jesus knows. And how much Jesus knows what it's like what it is like, we can rest in knowing that our God is aware of us. Aware of where we are. My Jesus, this is very intimate, my Jesus knows my name. Put your name there. My Jesus knows my name. He knows right where I am in this situation. I am not forgotten. There's another picture here. We'll finish with this. I am not forgotten. It, let this just indelibly be printed on your minds. I am not forgotten. God knows my name. Remember it says in, in, in I, I believe it's Isaiah, he's imprinted us on his hands. He's imprinted us on the palms of his hands. It's intimate. It's intimate, my God. Folks, in a world of hurt, I can rest. I can rest in the fact that my Jesus is with me. I can rest in this. I can, I can rest in this because my Jesus knows. My Jesus knows. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Isn't it easy to follow one that has been here just like us? Died for us is one of us. My sheep hear my voice and they know my name and they follow me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for these wonderful people that have endured this heat and broken air conditioning and the rest to hear the infallible and errant word of the living God. Holy Spirit, speak to each one of our hearts today truths that we need to hear. In Jesus' name, amen.